prepare yourself. It's Big News Wednesday. Nine times out of 10, it's a big old lie that branding. Wednesday's not big in terms of news, but this time it is because we've got big Colorado Supreme Court news to discuss. And then a whole bunch of other stuff that is interesting, compelling, or perhaps scary to discuss as well. That'll be me, John DeRola, and I am joined once again by Ravana. Ravana, thank you for filling in on very short notice. It's great to have you back on after our great conversation last week. Yeah, it's great to be back on. Happy to do it. It's always funny when I get that email and they're like, I'm so sorry, so short notice. Can you do it? And I'm like, thinking about, oh, I've got a busy day of watching anime and making one Rebel HQ video. Let's see if I can pencil it in. No, I'm very happy to be here and super excited to talk about a lot of these stories today. I have to say, you are presenting yourself as uncommitted to that anime grind, okay? If you can so easily set it aside. There's a new season of Attack on Titan that's only been out for a little bit. But I don't know if you're really committed. But in any event, let's forget briefly about anime, if we can, and discuss the news. Because there is a lot going on. And we're going to jump into it just in just a minute. If you're listening on the podcast, stories you can expect include not only Donald Trump being yeeted off the Colorado uh, ballot him doubling down on his Nazi speech, which is really fun. John Fetterman deciding to again attack young people and TikTok. And uh, a little bit of a conspiracy theory about the flag of Minnesota. We're gonna dive into it and see if there's anything to it. That's all just in the first hour. Uh, in the aftermath, we're gonna be talking about Steve Bannon's theory that um, young people's problems would be solved if they all just had guns all the time. Uh, we're gonna be evaluating the fate of Chick-fil-A and what has the pandemic done to our bodies. All that and more. Hit the like button, share the stream as we launch into this. Rivana, are you ready for this thing? I am so ready. Okay, let's do it all. Let's start with the big one. The Colorado Supreme Court just launched a cannonball into the 2024 presidential race because they've ruled that Donald Trump will not be allowed to appear on state ballots in next year's presidential election. Now, they sort of have put this on hold. They did the ruling and then immediately put it on hold as he seeks review in the US Supreme Court, which I think they're going to rule on this. I think they'll pick this one up. Obviously, there's a lot of cases for them to consider, but this seems like a big one. In the short term, it would, if the hold was stopped, affect Donald Trump's place in the Colorado Republican primary. But bear in mind that what's amazing about this is that there have been a lot of different attempts in different states to accomplish what just worked in Colorado. But this is the first time that a court has actually found that section three of the 14th amendment, which we'll be talking about, it bans insurrectionists who once swore to uphold the constitution from holding office, actually applies to Trump or to any former president. There haven't been a lot of opportunities for them to rule in that way because generally former presidents don't try to overturn the results of elections. But anyway, so far courts have not agreed with what the Colorado Supreme Court is effectively doing here. Minnesota's top court has already rejected an attempt to push Trump off the ballot that was last month. In a, a judge in, uh, rules against another effort in Michigan. There are roughly three dozen cases like this, and they have not been successful. Even this one wasn't fully successful before the Colorado Supreme Court picked it up. But bear in mind that now that they've ruled in this way, it is possible that that could be cited by judges in other cases. So perhaps we'll see a proliferation of these sorts of judgments. But um, but just to, to make sure that people understand, as we jump into the conversation. 
the sort of constitutional underpinning of all this is that section three does say that no one should hold office in the US if they quote, have engaged in insurrection, not been convicted of insurrection notably, or rebellion against the US or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And that given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof section is not generally what people focus on when talking about this. But I honestly think that there's maybe a more compelling case for that part of the section three than the earlier part. But that said, we turn now to Ravana. Were you surprised by Colorado's decision? What is your reaction? I was surprised because I, you know, you mentioned that the district court ruling held that it didn't apply to the office of the presidency. We've seen other states decline to interpret section three of of 14th Amendment in this way. So it did come as a surprise to me, but I understand the argument being made by the court and I'm sympathetic to it, right? So as I mentioned, the district court and a lot of the other states that you know declined to prevent him from being on the ballot because of this, their interpretation was, and everyone you know, just as a refresher, the 14th Amendment is one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It was written with the intent to keep Confederates out of political office. It doesn't explicitly say that it applies to the office of the presidency. So that's why the district court interpreted that it cannot be applied to that office. The Supreme Court held that you can interpret it in that way, and it's a novel issue, right? There's no precedent for this. Obviously, it wasn't necessarily intended to to be used in this manner, but there's no reason why it couldn't be interpreted to apply to other types of instances of insurrection outside of the Civil War. You know, so that's how it's being applied here. Let me just jump in and add a little bit to that before we get more of your comments, Harry, because that that's sort of like to the extent that people who are mad about this decision care at all about the facts of it, that's what they care about. Now, Mm -hmm. most of the opposition has literally nothing to do with whether it actually applies to Trump. They don't care, they don't care if it was specifically written that you can't do this, that you can't organize a riot on Twitter or whatever, they still wouldn't care. But what it does say in section three is the people that it lists is a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, I think maybe a case could be made there, or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state. And by that, I think it's more fair to say they mean the states of the United States rather than the fact that technically countries are states. But but anyway, the Colorado Supreme Court said that President Trump asks us to hold that section three disqualifies every oath breaking insurrectionist except the most powerful one. And that it bars oath breakers from virtually every office, both state and federal, except the highest one in the land. Both results are inconsistent with the plain language and history of section three. So look, that I think is debatable. And it's debatable in the way that that's how the law works. It is very rarely super clear exactly what is intended. But bear in mind, it's not like they just ignored all of these arguments, they addressed them. And some mm-hmm. people might not like the way they came down on this. But the re- the reaction from the Republicans is like just the DNC decided he's off. When the case was, was originally brought by Republicans and they did actually address the content of the case. So apologies for jumping in, but give me more of what you think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they would make that argument that the DNC wants him off the ballot when we've seen the polling that any Republican other than Trump is defeating Biden by a large number. The idea that this is like the explicit goal of the DNC is laughable to me and you know, 
on the politics side of things, I think this could him being disqualified, not just on Colorado's ballot, but when the Supreme Court takes up the issue, because they will take up the issue. If they're, you know, the snowball's chance in hell that they rule that he's disqualified from running on the ballot in any state happens, I think that the DNC would find itself in a very, very difficult position with Joe Biden as their candidate. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's really what the Republican qualm with the argument is. Right, it isn't about you know the interpretations of the legalese. You know, when you see the word or versus and in a piece of legislation and the way that you interpret that. But I mean, as far as the ruling that they made goes, the way that they interpret Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, the the real the short answer to that is the answer to every legal question, which is it depends. It just depends on your interpretation, the the method through which you interpret legislation. And so I think that when it goes to the Supreme Court, we're going to see this decision reversed. But it'll be interesting to see what issues specifically they bring to the Supreme Court, because I'm as I mentioned, it's a matter of first impression. So both the District Court and Colorado. Colorado and the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump did engage in insurrection. So is the Trump campaign going to ask the Supreme Court to evaluate that claim? Or are they just going to ask them to evaluate mm-hmm. the specific claim as it applies to um, section three? It'll be fascinating to see, but I think it's important that you mention, because I've seen some people make this argument, you don't need a conviction to make that evaluation in court. You don't need a conviction on an insurrection claim to be able to interpret this are the section of the amendment in that way. It doesn't yeah. have to happen in a criminal court. They courts are equipped to make that determination based on the facts presented themselves. Yeah. By the way, I'm glad that you brought up what like let let's say it was allowed to stand. The Supreme Court allows this to stand. Um what would the actual effects of it be? Well, first of all, when it comes to Colorado specifically, it's largely irrelevant. Donald Trump was whooped in Colorado. Mm-hmm. No Republican has won in Colorado since 2004. So it's not like that's that's gonna rig the election, but <laughs> conceivably it could spread to other places, both in the general election, but also in the primary. I guess that would be more more relevant. And, and I totally agree, like all of the Republicans who are like, they're doing this so they, they can save Biden. This would almost certainly doom Biden if it resulted in Nikki Haley being the candidate. I don't think Biden would have a single chance considering economic concerns. Like, I think the only reason he has kind of a chance against Trump is because Trump is Trump. And Nikki Haley notably is not Trump. She's her own thing, which I have lots of problems with. But so the idea that like you guys don't care about principle, you're just doing this so you can win. I am not a hundred percent sure exactly what I think the Supreme Court should do. If it was up to me, but to be clear, if I agreed with the Colorado Supreme Court, it would not be because of my own pragmatic political aspirations. Like for the 2024 election, it would almost certainly lower the chance that a Democrat retains the White House. And before we move on to responses and everything, I sort of implied that I'm not 100% sure. Because again, I think that you really can debate whether you know the language should be interpreted in this way. Look, I personally think that if you engage in insurrection, it makes sense that you'd be barred from holding office. Um, but that said, I don't know that it's 100% clear that that's what you should define what he did. I think he was involved in a coup in some sense. Um, but anyway, I, we sort of, I think, agree that the Supreme Court is almost certainly going to knock this thing down. Do you think they should, briefly? Um, I think. <sighs> My personal opinion, I tend to interpret legislation through a more 
One through more strict lens as far as specific language. And I think that through that lens of interpretation, the word or is clear in the language that they're not specifically mentioning the office of the president. However, I think it absolutely falls within the spirit of what was intended with the law. I mean, he, if you can show that, and they did, and the courts found this in Colorado, that he engaged in an act of insurrection, that it follows logically that you would be able to apply this to that office. So I mean, I feel like I really see both sides of the issue. I don't think the Supreme Court, it wouldn't be the most offensive ruling they've ever made to me if they shot down this decision by the Colorado Supreme Court. And from a strictly mm-hmm. self-interested political perspective, I don't want them to rule that in agreement with the Colorado decision just because I think that it would be bad for the country and I could see the levels of vitriol from the right wing in this country escalating to a severe and pervasive amount of political violence if they were to do this. And that that frightens me somewhat. Not that I think yeah. the Supreme Court should be making decisions based on that, you know, determination. But I, you know, I really could see both sides of the issue. But I don't yeah. feel very strongly on on this necessarily. I don't think it's the best way to defeat Trump. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it wouldn't be my preferred way either. That said, my preferred way at this point depends on Joe Biden waking up one day and giving a damn about this thing. But but I agree. But again. My preferences is not how I think, like that's not the most important thing for how I think judges should be interpreting the law. Um, And I think a case definitely could be made that he should be barred in this way. Um, But anyway, we'll see, I think think you're right. I think the Supreme Court is going to overturn it. I don't even think it's necessarily gonna be like a straight party line thing. I think it it could end up being unanimous for all we know. And I think the principle um, that they will rely on is, is that it should be up to the people. The Supreme Court should not be choosing a president outside of 2000 and Bush v. Gore. Only in that one case should the Supreme Court be choosing who gets to be president, not in this case. Donald Trump hearing that he's being booted from the Colorado ballot, he wasn't happy about that. Now, he hasn't gone on at length. Yet on Truth Social about it, he's mainly relied on his lackeys. He's been retweeting virtually everyone who goes on the news to talk about this thing. And I mean everyone. Have you ever tried to go through Donald Trump's Truth Social feed to find like a specific thing? He never stops posting on there. When did it become normalized for people? And let's be honest, guys, to tweet as much as they do, and not just him. Elon Musk, have you ever tried to find like a specific one of Glenn Greenwald's tweets from like a day or two ago? It will take you 30 minutes. And I don't understand how we've gotten to this social situation. But more importantly, the whole constitutional thing, what he has said is things like, what a shame for our country and a sad day in America. Although again, he almost certainly knows that the Supreme Court is gonna knock this thing down whether they should or not. And as always, all of this stuff plays into his victim complex, his martyr complex. I'm sure this is gonna help him in the Republican primary. So is it really that sad of a day for Donald Trump? I do want to remind you though of something that he did tweet. Now this is going back a bit further, but you might recall that back in the 2016 race, he actually lost Iowa. Ted Cruz did way better than expected. And in response to that, he tweeted, the state of Iowa should disqualify Ted Cruz from the most recent election on the basis that he cheated a total fraud. 
And some of you might be wondering, well, I, I wasn't around back then. What, what, how did he cheat? How was he a fraud? Nothing. There was no specific claims. Trump just didn't like that he lost. So he said, screw what the people voted on. It's not up to them. I want the judges to step in and overturn this thing. So when it's in his favor, he's perfectly happy to have people removed from the ballot, even after the fact. But when it's affecting him, not so much. And that said, while he hasn't been very specific about this, his spokesperson said that this is the Democrats getting paranoid. Although again, it wasn't the Democrats that launched this this case. And they said that they're going to swiftly file an appeal. These are un-American lawsuits. So what do you think about the sort of PR aspect of this, Ravana, about the attempt to spin all of this? I mean, it's the same PR campaign they've been running in regards to all of his trials. I mean, I remember during his damages, civil damages trial in New York, he kept saying that this is an attempt to interfere with the election, to keep me off the campaign trail, despite the fact that he didn't have to be there. But it's been a really effective message for him and his base. I mean, we've been getting in these batches of Trump supporter footage from Michael Shore at these rallies, and that seems to be a really big rallying cry for a lot of those. I mean, and sifting through that is some of the most mind numbing and, and brain killing things <laughs> I've ever had to do for Rebel HQ. Um, but pull out some golden moments, that's always fun. But yeah, I mean, it really seems like it's an effective message. So they're continuing it there. Of course, he had to do his little sprinkle anti-Semitism on it, referred to George Soros and some of yep. those statements. Um, but I mean, it's really important for him. And you know, I'll bring this back to what I was saying earlier. It's really important for him to message that this is the Democratic Party. This is crooked Joe Biden that's doing this somehow connected to Hillary Clinton. I don't know. Um, but it's funny because as we were just talking about, this really isn't necessarily in the best interest of the Democratic Party, you know, not electorally, not politically. I mean, Trump being on the ballot might be the only thing that gives Joe Biden a second term. Yeah. And, and even that, you know, is a little bit shaky. But as you were mentioning, like this this would be great news for someone like Nikki Haley, who seems to now have ascended above the pack of garbage, levitating above <laughs> the can, if you will. Um, as far as the rest of the candidates for uh, the Republican nomination go, yeah. if this was to go in against Trump's favors that would definitely benefit her. But yeah, I mean, it's the same messaging campaign they've been running. Just they're gonna find a way to repackage it just a little bit, no matter what seeming slight or <laughs> transgression against Trump they're you know talking about in the media on any given day. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's indisputably true that this is Biden's best chance. But I love that like all of the Trump people have to pretend that that's not the case. They all have to be like, no, Biden's like secretly super scared of Trump. Like, no, no, he's the literal best chance. But you guys can't accept that because it makes you look bad. Probably good news for Nikki Haley. I disagree with the characterization that she has risen above the trash. I think that she is perhaps on the top of the trash. She's like an eclair on a doily sitting at the very top like an angel, but still reeking of trash like the rest of them. But anyway, Biden, we don't have the video for you, but Biden was asked about this ruling as he got off or got onto a plane. He's asked if Trump was an insurrectionist. He said, it's self-evident, you saw it all, Jack. Now whether, I added the Jack. Now whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision, but he certainly supported an insurrection. There's no question about it, none, zero, which seems fair. You know, <laughs> I'm perfectly happy to criticize Biden when he's wrong. I think that that's fair. 
it will in the end, by the way, realistically be up to a court, no matter what Biden wants. I know the right wants to pretend that it's up to him, but that's not actually how it works. In any event, this is going to be overturned. But if it isn't, you can bet your ass the Republicans are gonna race to slippery slope this thing and try to apply it as they always do to the other side. Here's an early example of how that might work with the Lieutenant Governor of Texas. Seeing what happened in Colorado tonight, Laura, makes me think, except we believe in democracy in Texas, maybe we should take Joe Biden off the ballot in Texas for allowing 8 million people to cross the border since he's been president, disrupting our state far more than anything anyone else has done in recent history. So it's a little bit see through how this is going to work. They immediately jump from, I, th I think you're being unfair in your interpretation of the plain language of section three of, uh, of the 14th amendment to, uh, I don't like this political thing that's happening, so we take him off too. What, what is, you're not even trying to make the case that that applies to the 14th amendment. It's just a border or whatever, okay, uh, gas prices, we get them off the ballot. That's not how any of this works. And the thing is like, you should be able to take a look at what Donald Trump did in 2020 and recognize that that stands out literally through American history. We have not had a thing like that happen during a presidential election. There is no reason that that should necessitate a slippery slope where other people are randomly getting taken off the ballot because of something they tweet or something. But also realistically, that is how the Republicans work. They have always used the fact that Donald Trump just Kool-Aid mans his way through our norms to then say, "Oh, this is the new norm. And we're gonna pretend that all of it, like if you criticize the Republicans, then you did an insurrection. It's the way that they try to both sides literally everything. And if the Supreme Court does not take down this Colorado decision, I expect that we will we will see stuff like what Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick there said come true. But Ravana, what do you think? Yeah, I think, John, that you didn't have your ears open or maybe your heart open to listen to what Dan Patrick said, because he clearly stated that they believe in democracy in the state of Texas. That's how he <laughs> opened his statement. So surely it must be true. Never mind the fact that Ken Paxton is their attorney general, literally mm -hmm. the most corrupt attorney general in the entire country, which is a difficult position to hold, difficult title to be have bestowed upon you in America. But he stands alone amongst mm -hmm. attorneys general. I mean, it's just absurd. It's absurd. There's a million things that Biden has done that I think should disqualify someone from being the president in his ongoing support for the genocide in Gaza, namely as one. I think that his cruel treatment of migrants, his flying in the face of international law as it pertains to the treatment of asylum seekers absolutely should be something that should disqualify him from being elected president. But that doesn't mean I think that we should just throw him off the ballot because he hasn't staged an insurrection. And you mentioned what happened with Donald Trump is unique in our history, which is what makes it a novel issue, an issue of first impression, which is exactly why the Supreme Court is surely going to take up the issue. But there's no argument that Joe Biden has done anything even remotely similar. I mean, they'll try to say that Jewish Voice for Peace activists, you know, peacefully staging a sit-in mm -hmm. inside of a Capitol building or an office building is the same thing as multiple people dying as people were pooping on Nancy Pelosi's desk. You know, yep. <laughs> you know. I mean, it's just such an absurd argument. And we we can we can no longer be surprised by this hypocrisy. I mean, they were more angry about the affront to civil society represented in people, I think, being rude to Sarah Huckabee Sanders in a restaurant 
yes. than they were to Paul Pelosi's skull being bludgeoned open. Like we we cannot expect like just because their side of the aisle shrieks the word debate as often as they do does not mean that they are thinking clearly, logically, reasonably about literally any of this. There are no principles to be found on the other side. And so yeah, the slippery slope will definitely be on if this doesn't happen. That said, we'd previously talked about how this might, this really might impact Nikki Haley. Well, there's another Republican primary contender, technically contender to Donald Trump who's weighing in on this. Let's take a look. They have just tried to bar President Trump from the Colorado ballot using an unconstitutional maneuver that is a bastardization of the 14th Amendment to our US Constitution. This was a provision, section three, that was designed to bar Confederate members, people who switched to the Confederacy from actually being able to serve. That's very different than what's at issue here to say the least. I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until Trump's name is restored. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing, or else these Republicans are simply complicit in this unconstitutional attack on the way we conduct our constitutional republic. Okay, we will get to his continuing efforts to lick Donald Trump's boots in just a sec. But first, I just want to say, for a guy who's tried to brand himself as like the the intellectual in the group or whatever, he doesn't even understand what the argument against Colorado is here. You could take up, did he actually engage in an insurrection? I think that's an open question. Does section three actually apply to the press? No, he says, forget all that stuff. I don't understand any of that. Uh, it was intended to be against like people in the Civil War. Like the, the, the things you can debate are already abstract. Now you're gonna go to pure intent of the amendment. That's not even a conservative position to take, but he doesn't even understand what's going on. So please do not accept that just like Ben Shapiro, the fact that he talks super fast means that he knows what's actually going on. But what he does understand that is going on is that his role in this race is not to defeat Donald Trump, it's to assist Donald Trump. It always has been, and that remains his role because now he's saying, even though again, this is on hold. Donald Trump is still on the Colorado ballot in the Republican primary and will likely never be taken off of it because the Supreme Court within a month is gonna rule. But he has to immediately jump out and say, I'm gonna cast myself into a volcano for Donald Trump. And if Nikki Haley isn't jumping into the magma along with me, then she's a rhino. Ravana, what do you think? Well, John, I thought he made a really good argument. He said the word constitution and constitutional a lot in that mm. statement. So clearly he That's knows a big what he's word. right. So he's got to know what he's talking about. Um, I'll just add that he is in protest taking himself off of the primary ballot, despite the fact that the primaries are run by the party. It has, it's not the same entity that runs the general election. It's got nothing to do, it's not the same thing at all. So, like, we're active protest is just him bowing down to Donald Trump. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And by the way, the Colorado GP is already saying that they will literally change over to a caucus to get around this if they have to. Again, because just like Ramaswamy, the entire institutional Republican Party in the state is just there to give Donald Trump what he needs. Um, but anyway, by the way, I'm like, I'm trying to find right now, do they have polling for the Republican side in Colorado? Like, <laughs> as if Ramaswamy is like, no, dude, don't take yourself off. You might win this thing. <laughs> like, dude's probably pulling at 3%, and he's like, I will sacrifice myself. 
Yeah, okay, and I'll take myself off the Democratic thing in California. Really sacrificing a lot there. Anyway, obviously there's gonna be a big story going forward, particularly this week, we will continue to track it. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, "Oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. No, they're coming from all over the world, people all over the world. We have no idea. They could be healthy. They could be very unhealthy. They could bring in disease that's going to catch on in our country, but they do bring in crime. Quote, all great cultures of the past perished. Only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning, unquote. There's really no other way to say it. Donald Trump's language mirrors this directly. You know, your country and your candidacy is in a good spot when you have to assert that you've never read Mein Kampf. Um, by the way, I agree. I don't think he's actually read it. I think he knows he's referencing it though, which is a slightly different thing. And I. I also love when he's like, I didn't, I didn't read it. I don't know it. I said the thing in a very different way. I know specifically what he said, and I didn't say it in the same way. It's the same thing. So we can put up the graphic. Jake Tapper did a great job in showing that. It's that's what he's referencing. Like you can think the you can think that the reason he's referencing that could be one of a couple things: his personal familiarity with Mein Kampf. The fact that maybe Stephen Miller put it into a speech because he probably reads it nightly to his kids. You could think of it for a couple different reasons, but you cannot say that it's in the speech for any other reason than it's a thing that Hitler and the Nazis said. That's all it is. And so, by the way, if he didn't know that, let's say that the first time in his life that he has ever spontaneously tried to use poetic language in a speech, he just happened to trip and fall face first into a Nazi terminology. Well, he knows now that that's a Hitler thing. And as you saw, he's doubling down, actually tripling down because he already truth socialed it. And so it doesn't bother him that he's using the same language as Hitler, which strikes me as a little bit weird, doesn't really seem to bother a lot of conservatives. Ravana, what do you make of all this? I think that you're spot on that he's never read Mein Kampf. I would see that and raise you. He's never read a book ever in his life, except for maybe the book he wrote himself. But even then, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that he's even read his own book. It is disgusting, despicable language. Of course, we know that Trump, as well as DeSantis and other Republican candidates for president, have surrounded themselves with white supremacists. So even if he hadn't read it himself, he's familiar with the quote and the conservative media coming to bat for Donald Trump and defending his use of this language, I think just goes a long way to show that they also believe this racist, despicable nonsense. And that they're not afraid to to state that they believe in it. Of course, you want to distance yourself from Adolf Hitler unless your mom's for liberty. But, um, mm. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they don't believe the exact same ideology as it pertains to uh, the great replacement theory or you know uh, anti race mixing uh, ideology. Yeah, and by the way, he went on to, like in that video we showed you. He went on to say they're 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 diseased. They're dirty and diseased, and they're trying to disease our country. So again, to I forget the representative who yesterday was like, 
No, he isn't. He's not talking about them. He means the democratic border policies. No, he is demonizing individual migrants as dirty and diseased. That is just normalized. Remember, Tucker Carlson a few years back lost sponsors because he said that immigration makes America dirtier. Now you can just say it in your stump speeches and it's nothing. Again, the the point that he's making is that we're being flooded with immigrants, uh, totally normalized in like one day. It's so normalized, we don't even normally cover it anymore. Laura Ingram said the Biden administration is in the deliberate process of remaking America through migration. That's the great replacement theory. Stephen Miller, quote, what we are witnessing is the engineered political transformation of the country. They just all say it now and I will remind you because it's so easy to just get used to what has been normalized. That's how normalization works. Back in, I think it was 2019, if we could put up this article, the New York Times had to like explain what it was because the only way a normal person would have seen it was on like the darkest corners of 4chan. It was literally as a result of the guy who killed 50 people in mosques in New Zealand citing the great replacement theory. That now is just a thing cable news hosts say, the next attorney general of the United States potentially says, you say it in your stump speeches, you say it everywhere. That's how normalization works. And one other way that it works is pushing to go even further. Senator Tommy Tuberville, one of like the few Republicans who's like super eager to talk about this says, I'm mad he wasn't even tougher than that. They're, we're being overrun, they're taking us over. Hitler quotes are not enough for Tommy Tuberville. And by the way, I love the idea that he's worried that we're being invaded or whatever as he's like fighting to stop us from having new military leadership. But anyway, Rivana, I'm throwing a lot out there. What do you make of it? I mean, it's fascinating to me that this is like the party that worships Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, a president who did amnesty. <laughs> but you know, it was okay then when he did it. But now when there's a migration, then that's an infestation. I'll say that the Democratic Party though, and the Biden administration has signaled that it's willing to exchange tough, abhorrent crackdowns on migration in exchange for funding to Israel. So of course the Democratic Party isn't going to say things as despicable, I mean, as literally quoting Hitler. But if their policies are just as violent and oppressive towards migrants, yeah, sure, they're not spreading that rhetoric, but they're still treating migrants the same way that Republicans want them to be treated. And it's despicable. Yeah. And I'll just say I worked in immigration law at the end of the Trump administration at the beginning beginning of the Biden administration. And I was expecting, and maybe because I had I was a little bit more optimistic and less jaded than I am now, I was expecting some change considering so much of the Biden campaign was ran on. Look at the cruelty that Donald Trump has enacted against migrants. We need to do better than this. But I saw no change during my time mm-hmm. working in immigration law and no meaningful change. In fact, almost most of the change that happened was forced to happen by the courts. <laughs> so, yeah. and now we're gonna see, you know, regression on, on those small victories that we've seen, you know, nationally for immigration because the Biden administration is willing to do it. So, you know, the rhetoric is despicable and inspires, as you, you just showed, mass violence, mass shootings, so much hate. But what the, if the Democrats, if that is really the position of their party, what the Biden administration has signaled they're willing to do, they're just as willing to be violent towards these migrants. Yeah, um, it, the amazing thing about it, so as, as you say, the there was so little actual Biden initiated change in the immigration laws. Uh, and yet 
like it. He thought he clearly thought that he would get some credit out of continuing Trevor policies. No, they're literally now joking that they're going to bar him from the ballot over it. Like you don't get any points. And granted, I'm not one of those people that's like Biden maintained Trump era policies exclusively so that he would get points. I think he did it in large part because he agreed with those policies in that way. Mm -hmm. But you also will not get any points. Seventy-two percent of young voters, according to this new poll, disapprove of how President Biden is handling the Israel-Hamas war. Why do you think so many younger people, especially in your party, see it differently? I, I really, I really don't, I really don't know. Uh, I, I do know that a lot of people are getting their perspective from TikTok, and I think if you're kind of getting your perspective on the world on TikTok, it's going to tend to be kind of warped or not reflective of the, the history and, and actually the way things absolutely are. Okay, now it would be very easy to see that video from John Pat Fetterman and get down on him. But I think there's something to it in that on TikTok, I actually heard that like 20,000 civilians had died in Gaza. And since that is only a fact on TikTok, I guess you can see how that would sway people. No, this is like so condescending. Young people can have not had 50 years of being propagandized to about how Palestinians are fundamentally not human. That is a significant difference between them and prior generations. They have not been raised to think that anything that is done by the Israeli military is justified no matter what. So justified that we don't need to comment on it. Fetterman there doesn't really seem to care that much about what's happening in Gaza. And in fact, like to be fair, let me go to more of what he had to say and then we'll do a little bit of eviscerating. And what is very clear is, is that Hamas started this and they actually broke the, the ceasefire and they attacked and murdered babies, children, women, attacked a music concert and everything. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And from, from now on, it's been very clear that, that Israel would very much want there to be peace. But they've made it very clear that after October 7th, that that's just not possible so long as Hamas is allowed to exist. John Fetterman has the right issue on a lot of topics. But right there, he is giving you the most smooth brained version of what the Israeli like military line would have you believe about this. He shows no ability whatsoever to understand nuance. He can cite specific things that Hamas has done, some of which are true. Did Hamas start this most recent round of violence? Yes, this most recent round of violence was started by the horrendous incidents on October 7th. Did they break the ceasefire? It's arguable. I mean, they both say that the other side did. And he cites specific reprehensible attacks that they've conducted. And just like virtually everyone in mainstream media, he seems to think that, oh, they did that, so that's it. We don't have to think anymore. You, you attacked a concert. Okay, 8,000 kids are dead. Way, way more have lost their parents, other family members. Far more will die as a result of the devastation in Gaza right now. And I would love to have someone have the balls to explain why going into a house and murdering the people there, as reprehensible as that is, is somehow more morally reprehensible than blowing apart 10 times as many people, 20 times as many people. Murder is unacceptable in all cases, I agree. But 20 times the murder, you should at least recognize that it happened. 
I feel like at a certain point, once you've blown apart enough babies and children, you should be obligated to at least explain why that doesn't bother you. But John Fetterman there, a guy who has given us some reason in the past to believe that we should have expectations of him, doesn't even need to cite the numbers. He just said, Hamas did it. It's on Hamas, whatever, I'm moving on. I'm not even going to argue, I'm not even gonna take stock of the situation and explain why this mountain of dead civilians is acceptable as a cost in pursuit of Israel's military goals. Ravana, what do you think? I mean, John Futterman is literally using his position as a United States Senator to justify genocide. Um, and a lot of his justifications for that genocide are rooted firmly in Zionist propaganda because you know he did say some things that were true, but a lot of the things that he's used his massive platform to espouse have been blatant lies. And I mean, it just shows a complete indifference to the lives of Palestinians. But John, just to get back to the the TikTok thing, I think you're exactly right that young people haven't been as inundated with pro-Israel Zionist propaganda as other generations have. It was never something that I really experienced in my life growing up. I never had like a strong relationship with that kind of propaganda. But TikTok is obviously it's become really ubiquitous with Gen Z people use it every day. I use it every day. I'd like to show him my timeline on TikTok to just have him take a look and see exactly what types of Propagandizing are happening. My TikTok is like entirely women doing deadlifts and soccer player mm. hair transplants. But that being said, there's a lot of people who use TikTok as a really good resource to educate people. Ariana Jasmine is a great example. Jessica Burbank uses her platform to educate people on the history of Palestine as well as you know the facts of what's actually happening. And we also have on the ground citizen journalists in Gaza who are risking their lives every single day to show the truth to people in the West to just try to garner some sympathy and it is really working on particularly the young demographics that are on TikTok. Because one, yeah. they haven't had that intense propagandizing to support Israel, but also just seeing the violence right in front of our faces every single day. It's not something that you can deny. It's not something that you can forget. It motivates you, it makes you passionate, it brings people to protests, it gets people you know, contacting their elected officials to try to call for a ceasefire. And yeah. you know, it, it like breaks my heart that the people who are my age and younger in Gaza have to sacrifice their lives to bring this message to the West. And that they, they know that the Israeli government might target them because they've targeted many journalists so far in this genocide. And they might die just to get this message out. Yeah. And I think that that really resonates with the people who are seeing this every single day on, on platforms like TikTok. Hundred percent, and like even if you have an issue with where they're getting their news, like do you think this will be persuasive to them, John Fetterman? Do you think this is going to change some of their minds? I mean, never never mind the fact that you again refuse to actually accept the numbers coming out of there, accept the fact that thousands of civilians will die this week, thousands of civilians will die next week, and you are not telling me that that bothers you, so I have to assume that it does not. Um, and I'm not saying that there can't be generational differences or whatever. There are. I don't use TikTok every day. I go to YouTube to watch videos of women deadlifting. We are different <laughs> in that way, Ravana. I get them on YouTube Shorts. But um, but anyway, it's just this is not persuasive. This feels like the this feels like the Biden administration line on all the criticisms of them. Like 
just spit in the face of the people who have good reason to have an issue with your performance, that's not gonna get a lot of people on your side. US homelessness this year has reached levels that have not been seen since the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And that top line fact is scary enough. I think that should be stress, stressing enough for us as a country. But there's a lot more in this report that came out of the Department of Housing and Urban Development that I think should worry a lot of people. The raw numbers of those experiencing homelessness, 653,000 is terrible. It is a 12% increase from last year, that is a major increase. Like, like think that is, that is about 60,000 additional people, a stadium full of people experiencing homelessness, indifference just from last year. It is the highest since 2007 and one third of those number are chronically homeless. That by the way, is the highest level that has been measured ever. By the way, of those that we're talking about here, 60% were sheltered, 40% were unsheltered, sleeping outdoors or places not meant for human habitation. You have a rise in homelessness among families and individuals. And it's particularly bad as so many of these stories tend to be once you break it down into different demographic groups. So black people accounted for 37% of the homeless population, despite only making up 13% of the country's entire population. Asian Americans saw the largest percentage increase, a 40% rise from 2022, which is absolutely massive. Uh, the largest numeric increase was among Hispanic or Latino Americans, up by more than 39,000 people, again, from just last year. This is, look, I am seeing this being reported. Vice News is a great write up on it. I am seeing it in some other places. But this is the sort of national crisis that should dominate our political discourse. And I think you and I both know that it has virtually no chance of that happening. Um, if anything, those who are going to weigh in, likely on Fox News, are going to use this news as another way to just demonize homeless individuals. But Ravana, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's really sad to see this, especially coming off of a recent study. I think it was out of California where they gave homeless individuals a certain amount of money every month. And by the end of the study, wouldn't you know it, they were experiencing better conditions than when they weren't getting any money at all. And when I was filling in for you, John, like a few months back, I covered the same story coming out of Colorado, the same type of study done over a year where they saw a massive decrease in homelessness among the population of people that they were just giving money, no strings attached to every single month. And it turns out when you give these people money, they don't spend it on drugs and alcohol like the right wing would want you to believe. They spend it on food, they spend it on medicine, they spend it on housing. Because you know, and as you mentioned those numbers, a portion of the individuals are living in shelters or some are living in their vehicles, but you know, that's not permanent housing. But we saw like a massive increase in stability in housing for this population if you just give them money. and. If you just give them houses, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you of course see a massive increase in housing stability for this population. The solutions are in front of us, um, but instead of actually enacting these types of meaningful solutions, Democratic parties across the country, you know, state parties and the national party would yeah. uh, rather just debate bro you about how actually economic conditions are slightly better if you look at this graph when we have people feeling so much economically worse off than they've, you know, in this case, been since the 2008 <laughs> crisis. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the 
Look, the solutions are complex in implementation, but philosophically not complex. Help people to find housing. Mm-hmm. Make change, like, and by the way, the ways that you do that aren't necessarily just specifically unhoused individual facing. Your policy on real estate and all that is obviously going to have massive consequences on that. But the, but the weird thing is that like it is, it is so weirdly easy. I'm only I'm going to say for America. I, I don't speak for other countries. That what should be the trigger for a massive amount of empathy, people having to live without a home. Which anyone, it's not like that's a debatably bad thing. Nobody watching this is like, nah, maybe it's bad, maybe it's not. We should instantly know that that's an unacceptable situation for any human being to live in. And yet, there has been a very successful effort, obviously, socially in America, to get people to think, nah, screw them, doesn't matter. Like they're they're bad people. The fact that they're experiencing something that if I had to go through it for one night, like that would be devastating. They deserve it. Nothing needs to be done. I hate them. I don't want to see them. And you have rich a holes in the news. Like we don't have time, unfortunately, to show you the Jesse Waters video we're going to show you. But like we have covered for like three years now. Every couple months, he goes back to how much he absolutely despises the unhoused population. And so even just pragmatically, isn't it a little bit weird that he supports policies that result in these massive increases in the unhoused population? Like he is creating the conditions that will make it so uncomfortable for him as he steps out of his limo and has to walk past those who don't have homes on his way to his fancy studio. As you said, I wish we had time to go over the numbers, but yes, that that study that was done that gave people a $750 monthly stipend was used for food, housing, transportation, the sort of things that you might expect. It was incredibly helpful. This is not the first time a study like that has been done. One would think again that if you had a problem with people being unhoused, something like this seems like a really cheap way to solve that social situation that you find so inconveniencing. And yet, I am sure that to the extent that this gets talked about, it will be demonized by the right as giving money to bad people.